Joining us for both hours of our program are Marie D. Jones and co-author Larry Flaxman. First hour, we're going to discuss their recent 2015 new page book release, Mind Wars, a history of mind control, surveillance, and social engineering by the government, media, and secret societies. Second hour, we'll shift our focus to their other book, authored in 2009, entitled The Resonance Key, exploring the links between vibration, consciousness, and the zero-point grid. And in fact, both subjects meet, in my opinion, in the human mind, in human intention, and vibration, which connects all things in the life field. It's always a question of intention. What do we as humans want from and with each other to dominate and control or to emancipate and elevate? Beginning, though, with Mind Wars, the authors say that, quote, from the dawn of humanity, the desire to control the thoughts, behaviors, and actions of others has been a pervasive one from the use of coercive persuasion by ancient Egyptians and the Knights Templar to today's claims of electronic harassment and microwave bombing. We have always been at the mercy of those who wish to reprogram our thoughts and reshape our beliefs, unquote. Here to look at the history of mind control, modern technologies impacting us all today and much more is Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman. Nice to be here. Well, thank you for joining us. So that's Marie. Larry? Yes, thank you very much. You're welcome. (laughs) Well, look, why don't we start by defining what mind wars mean in terms of human history and today? Wow. I think it's an ongoing, uh, the desire that human beings have to control each other's thoughts, behaviors, and actions. And, you know, I think it's, whether it's interpersonal relationships, religion, politics, you name it, boss, employee, um, spouses, lovers, friends, we are always trying to find a diff- uh, different ways and techniques and tools to make people do our bidding. And a lot of times we end up losing control of our own minds and our own thoughts and process. Mm-hmm. And, and when you look as you do, I mean, I have so many questions, we won't get through them all. But I remember as a kid hearing about brainwashing, you know, whether it was the Japanese or the Chinese, somebody was always brainwashing, of course, never, never the U.S. government. But and as you point out, everything from religion to mass consumption is a form of brainwashing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think the media right now is probably the biggest brainwasher that there is. But yeah, this is a part of our history. You know, during the Korean War, we had our POWs being brainwashed, and and that actually led to the creation of the Project MKUltra, which was our our government's own little program, although it wasn't little by any means, uh, to try to determine how they were brainwashing so that we, of course, could go ahead and do it to our enemies and so, but it's, I, you know, Larry and I have talked about this. We, we are pretty sure that even back in caveman times, there were, there were ways that people were trying to do this to each other. I think it's just, sure. When you, when you asked the questions at the beginning of your book that you've attempted to answer, one of them was actually looking at ancient societies' use of mind control. Give, it, give us an example. Um, in ancient societies' <laughs> use of mind control... Hmm. I'm trying to think. Honestly, I don't remember right. any from the book. <laughs> it was um, really more ritual based. So yeah, you know, yeah. It was I mean, there's torture and throughout... ritual and the use of of forcing people to obey the deities and and threatening them that if they didn't partake in these particular rituals, 
Well, and some of them even, you know, when you look at some of the Aztec traditions, giving up your life was considered an honor. And and they did so oftentimes. We talk about kamikaze pilots. Well, they would sacrifice themselves, you know, throw themselves into volcanoes. And the Mayan civilization did this as well. You know, we always talk about how advanced they were, but when it came to things like uh, religious beliefs, where you have a lot of mind mental manipulation, it's interesting the extremes that people will go to. It's almost like suicide bombers, but they're doing it to themselves. Well, we see that today so much with what's going on in the world and what some people call Eurabia. You know, what's happening in Europe is a great example of modern media mind control because they're not really showing both sides of the picture and they're not really talking in the American press about the deliberateness with which all of these various peoples are invading various nations in Europe. And they're going, oh, come, let us all be friends, when actually behind right. the scenes, the backstory is, we're going to friggin', you know, whip your ass and move you all out of here, and we're going to take over, and it, we're going to fly right. the Islamic flag everywhere we are. And, yeah. they, and that goes for both sides. You know, we're bombing their countries, and we don't hear about the 5,000 Syrians that were killed, civilians and children, and then they want to retaliate against us, and then we decide to retaliate against them, and it is this chain of ongoing violence and retribution, all because of religious beliefs mm-hmm. or some kind of political agenda. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it is, I think it's a form of brainwashing that these people on both sides are caught up in. It's, it's a loop. Well, and, and as as we'll talk about, and, and we maybe we'll jump ahead to, you know, it's not always autonomous, independent thought. One of the things you point to is the technologies that are actually used, you know, excitatory um, brainwave stimulation or, you know, at a distance excitation through certain sonics or right. ultrasonic or whatever, you know, notions there are of technologies, they all exist and are being used. Let's skip to some of that and talk about what's going on in the modern era. Oh, gosh. I know Larry can really speak to the whole area yeah. of surveillance uh, and and the fact that we, we, don't, we really have no control of our own privacy, which I think is the biggest invasion. Um, I'll let him speak to that because he's sort of a little bit of an expert on that. All right. Oh, I don't know that anyone could really consider themselves an expert in anything. Well, you but, are more than me. <laughs> we'll put it that well, way. <laughs> I have a little bit more of an inner sight, I guess, to it. Okay. Uh, yeah. But, yes, um, uh, no, absolutely, and nice to finally talk. Not that Murray was, like, hogging the radio or anything. But, you know me. <laughs> yeah. Well, so where do we start? So technology and brainwashing and, and surveillance. Um, you know, it, it has become such an integral surveillance has become such an integral part of our society now that I think we take for granted um, the liberties uh, that we believe that we have. Technology has really acted as kind of this this great um, enabler, if you will, of sorts, um, and it's allowed governments, other individuals. Um, it, it's it's really allowed us lot more insight as far as into the um, microscopic view of one's world. Um, from a technological perspective, every one of us is probably our own worst nightmare. And as Ray said earlier, and, and I, I think I disagree to a certain extent, um, but that we don't have a choice in a lot of it. And I think we do to a certain extent. Some of it obviously is is 
certainly outside of our control. We don't have the ability to influence. But I think every one of us, to a certain extent, can um, somewhat remove ourselves from it. But before we even talk about that, let's kind of talk about some of the technology that's used today to surveil us and maybe why. So as we all saw um, with the events that unfolded over the weekend, the, the horrific attack in Paris, um, that, that's simply one example of technology failing. Um, we have the ability to surveil. We, governments have had essentially since right after 9-11 with the passing of the Patriot Act and other countries have enacted similar legislation as well. In the name of uh, homeland security or defense of the nation, um, we've enacted these, these swooping um, laws that enable us to, in more or less, less um, words, spy on our citizens in a way that allows us to gain greater, greater insight into the, oh, to the daily activities and what could be considered uh, dangerous to the populace at whole. Well, technology, is, is, it is such an ingrained part of our culture, we probably don't even think about it. Every time you swipe your card at the grocery store, every time you log on to Facebook from your cell phone, every time you, you pull into a Walmart parking lot, you're being watched. You ha there is a significant amount of audio, video, and other types of surveillance that, that's occurring. But as we saw this weekend, there was a terrible uh, disconnect between the technological surveillance, that, the capabilities that we have, and the communication of that information. So while we have a significant amount of insight into um, not only world events, but into the, uh, the inner lives of people, unless we are able to use that information in an actionable manner, um, things like what happened this weekend are going to continue to happen. Now, that was kind of a, I guess, a little bit of a side from the topic of tonight. But well, no, I, th I think it's important because I've talked over the years about this topic of using particular kinds of technology for mind control or changing behavior in general or making people feel that they are going to throw up or they do or that the sound that they hear is so deafening to the ears that it causes pain. And presumably I remember doing stories during the Persian Gulf War that right, it, it right. might be exactly why Saddam's soldiers surrendered so quickly in many yeah, instances yeah. because... They were using non-lethal weaponry, sonic weapons, um, and the kind of thing that you, you can't really tell why you're being disoriented and disabled. And, and they don't kill you. So these non-lethal weapons are really the what's happening in the present and the weaponry of the future, which is, I think, going to get even more advanced because, you know, we have technology, we have drones now doing our our dirty work for us. and um, But, you know, I like what Larry's talking about, but the interesting thing is, is that I under, you know, we understand every, yeah, we want to root out terrorist chatter if we can find it, but, you know, you start to hear how we're being, everything that we do is being logged as data somewhere. And that includes just, you know, ordinary citizens that have no reason to be under surveillance. Um, and now you could easily say, well, because there's so many people, they're not going to weed you out. You know, you're just a piece of data. Right. But it's still a real uncomfortable feeling. You know, when Larry would tell me about everything, it's like, oh, my God, I don't want to use my cell phone. I don't want to email. You, know, you, you start getting really paranoid. 
And but but don't pass that point because the paranoia well, is all part of mind control. I mean, what we know for absolutely. a fact is when you can excite people into fear, they right, are more right. vulnerable than in any other circumstance. So the media is fear-driven and pathologically absolutely. driven. One of the things you all point out, and I think it's a really fascinating point, is the narcissistic personality. You know, to me, all the reality TV shows has sort of sent, set the stage for a guy like Donald Trump even being able to advance his face as a presidential yeah. candidate. And it's because our culture now views politicians as entertainers. And we it's, view anybody yeah. who has a platform as being a television star. And he is very practiced at the bully pulpit, et cetera, et cetera, and using it. Well, yeah. And he also knows how to turn on the charm, which is, right. a, you know, that it's very cult-like behavior because you have these leaders that act like cult leaders. They're very charming, they're very persuasive, but underneath they're very selfish, greedy, self-centered, what have you. Well, that's the narcissistic personality I wanted you to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. And that is the narcissistic, that's, you know, their characteristics of a narcissist is that they're very persuasive, very charming. Um, They can get you to do things. Extraordinarily manipulative. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then the evil (laughs) starts to come out. But by then, you're sort of fooled. And I think a lot of us have had had friendships or family Mm -hmm. relationships, you know, or um, love relationships with people that were like that. And now we're seeing it in our politics and religion more because I think we're more aware of it through social media. And so I look at some of the terrorist aspects, and it is very narcissistic. It's people believing that their beliefs are the only beliefs, and they're going to kill everybody who doesn't agree. That is incredibly narcissistic. And so well, if that's you think how about, it all ties in. Well, and if you think about it from the technology perspective, with social media and the ability to propagate information so quickly and, and so um, with, uh, across such a wide swath, I mean, that that is all of those things. I mean, you really could in a way, almost consider social media as a means of mind control. Well, not not consider it. It definitively is. When yeah. you can actually yeah. target an individual and destroy them overnight with thousands right. of people thinking malicious things, posting malicious things, that that's real energy. We don't have a culture yet that appreciates that mind and idea actually is power. They think exactly. of it yeah. generally in our culture. You have to have material force. But the truth is it's a form of low dark magic. And that's what the history before this time period had really um, perfected. And now that social media is the tool by which you can do dark magic through thought and information, uh, it's very, very powerful. And I don't think we have the ethics yet, the ethical development to actually know how to use these social medias productively for the elevation of our world. Look, we're going to take a little break. We'll be right back. Our guests are Marie D. Jones and Larry Flaxman. Their book, Mind Wars, A History of Mind Control, Surveillance and Social Engineering by the Government, Media and Secret Societies is a new page release 2015. Hello, you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Zohara Hieronymus. This is Stefan Schwartz. I have just had a wonderful conversation, one of the many conversations that you will hear on Zohara's program, one of the most conscious radio programs in the United States. We've discussed my new book, The Eight Laws of Change, 
how you can be an agent of personal and social transformation. You can follow my work at www.schwartzreport.net or catch the book on Amazon. We're talking about their current new page 2015 release, Mind Wars, a history of mind control, surveillance, and social engineering by the government, media, and secret societies. You know, we talked very briefly um, about the way the media is used by political operatives. And um, besides promoting nationalism, when anything goes bad, you do a beautiful job of listing a number of um, ways in which it's used to distract us from really paying attention to the issue that isn't being discussed most of the time. Right, right. The distraction methods. <laughs> mm-hmm. And one of them you point out is fear-mongering. The other is demonizing the other guy, misinformation and misleading information. And w- when we look at that, I mean, there's also the subliminal. And I want to I want to talk about that, the sort of, as you call it, the under-the-radar mind control. There are no laws against subliminal programming, either by advertisers or any other agent. Talk to us a bit about how it's done and what it's doing. Well, you know, subliminal advertising has been around for a long, long time. And I think it, and and Larry might be able to answer this, uh, I think it was a lot easier before everything went digital um, to be able to put your subliminal messages in a commercial or a movie or what have you. And basically... Your, you know, your subconscious mind picks up on the flash of an object or a word or a phrase that your conscious mind doesn't see because it's on a frame-by-frame basis. <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, you know, there, there were congressional hearings to talk about subliminal advertising and how it was unethical, but nobody ever passed any laws. Now with advanced technology and everything being digital, I don't know. I think it's probably harder than ever to identify what your subconscious is being exposed to. And there, and uh, I don't know, maybe it makes it easier. You know, like I said, Larry, you might know more about that. Well, I think to a certain extent it does make it easier. And, and um, subliminal advertising actually dates back to 1957. Uh, was the first recorded um, use of that. It was in a movie theater, and they had used um, some some fancy things to try to get the audience to purchase popcorn and Coke yeah. um, that they had purchased or that they had inserted into a movie. But I think today, with the use of technology, the ability to insert audio and video um, at a much faster frame rate is certainly a more viable possibility. Back in the old days with standard film-based um, movies, you had a, a reel, and as the reel yeah. Yeah. on, there was, a, there was a finite speed that that uh, reel could spin. Now, with computers and, and um, graphic processing chips and our abilities to, to have almost um, real-time fluid motion, we can exceed 120-plus frames per second. So that's right. actually faster than the eye can perceive. So mm-hmm. it would be very so, easy, in fact, to insert those type of, of signals or cues into mm-hmm, especially right. video stuff without us knowing. And, and that would probably make it harder to even catch it or identify it. Well, and and there's also, you know, because we're if you're on cell phones and you're having sort of it's almost directed to the brain, um, we're getting almost used to the feeling of having radiation to the brain um, so much more part of our life. It's almost like an acculturation to these kinds of technologies. And, And you pointed out it was you know, when every time I do these kinds of shows, it reminds me of the years and years and years in which I would look at technologies with um, Greg Braden and others um, 
with Nick Begich out in Alaska and whether it was the Heart Project or other kinds of mind control, you talked about an actual patent um, that was submitted in January 2003, and it's titled Nervous System Manipulation by Electromagnetic Fields from Monitors, which means that Lovely. it's possible <laughs> to manipulate the nervous yeah. system by a by subjecting us to pulsing images displayed on a computer monitor or TV. So something that seems so harmless in a prison or in a school or in a children's classroom is actually capable of creating thought forms that did not originate with them, with the teacher, or with any curricula. It's something else. Right. You have no idea what is literally being beamed into your your brain and and you know in 1968 the nervous system excitation device uh patent was filed and they use uh, electromagnetic energy pulses microwave sound and all of that is going directly into your brain or the brain of whoever it's intended for and often you don't notice anything more than just feeling a little bit of malaise or sick to your stomach or disoriented, which a lot of us feel nowadays anyway because we're so stressed out and unhealthy. And and so we don't know if a lot of the unhealthiness that we're experiencing as a populace is coming from some of these things that it might be used in a sort of mass mind control uh, program or if it's our crappy food or a combination of several things and yeah, but there, like but there is such a thing, I think it's really important to say, but there are really purposeful, intentional technologies being de- developed, Absolutely. control yeah, masses absolutely. of people, and it's been used in crowd, crowd control, control around control. the world and in our own country. And one of them is this electronic harassment or what's called voice to skull. And I remember in my days of doing a daily show, sometimes people would call me after the show and start describing to me that they felt like they were victims of some sort of government test having once been in some sort of institutional incarceration and then right. came out and they felt less free than they ever were and that they are definitely being subject to either implant technology or something else. So talk to us about how we know that this is going on. Well, a lot of this is fully documented for the public to see in the form of patents. Um, and voice to skull, we have you know documentation about this reaching far as far back as the 1960s. In 1973, there were a number of studies done through Walter Reed Army Institute. This is all public record. And again, you have documents of, of people filing for patents for this type of technology. So it's really, in a way, it is being done under the radar, but it's also kind of hidden in plain sight, which makes it really chilling to think that, wow, I didn't know. I mean, I don't know, Larry, if you did, but before we wrote this book, I didn't know this stuff was going on. You know, you start researching it, and it's a little bit overwhelming to find out that there were studies done as far back as 1975 looking at how behavior could be modified using microwaves. That's frightening to me because that was so long ago, I can't even imagine what they're doing today in 2015. No, and I was just going to add that And for every study that you do find some type of annotated research on, there's probably 10 that are not. Mm -hmm. So you you absolutely have to wonder what the current state of technology is that is not being publicized. And maybe to a certain extent, maybe the, the, the powers that be put that information out there as kind of little bones for us. I know, think that's true. Little, little tidbits. So I think that's hey, true. Look, 
Let, yeah. let it, you know, focus on this, but don't, you know, yeah. don't pay any attention and focus on the bigger picture. Well, and, and you talk about in 2003, the U.S. Navy conducted research with a system called Medusa, which stood for mob excess deterrent using silent audio and focused, as you quote, as you point out, again, on the use of modified microwave pulses to, quote, cause great discomfort to personnel entering a specific area or protected perimeter, so you can see that it can be used not just for crowd control, but for military right. operations. And more on uh, warfare. Yeah, and I know that uh, sonic weapons were used in the Iraq War. Uh, I know that there, you know, we we know that a lot of prison experimentation has involved heat weapons, sound weapons. Uh, it seems to be sort of the the thing to do to test these on prisoners, and a lot of that is a matter of public record. It's just that people don't. Well, look for it. You know, unless you're writing a book like this or you have a desire to research this kind of stuff, you're not going to know what's going on. That's true. It's certainly not in the front page news, nor even right. a, not even below the fold. And because so yeah. much of it is black ops, the agenda is nefarious in the sense of um, doing things against people's will so they have no free will. You talked about the Manchurian candidate, which I'm sure some people have seen the film over the decades, or MK Ultra and the CIA connections between. Talk to us a bit about this, where there's really very deliberate um, placement of individuals who have been mind-controlled, and then they use triggers to get them to either, you know, assassinate somebody or murder a civilian or take down a corporate plane, whatever right. it is they're going to do. Right. Well, you know, it's funny because, I mean, I've seen both uh, Manchurian candidates, the one with Frank Sinatra and then the more recent one with um, Denzel Washington. Both are excellent examples of MK Ultra. And, you know, basically, this, again, this was a program that was started under the auspices of trying to figure out how they, meaning the enemy, were brainwashing our POWs. And a lot of, uh, when MKUltra was launched, it was such a massive program. It involved over 88 different institutions. We're talking, you know, prisons, universities, pharmaceutical companies, orphanages, you name it, any, any place that you could test on a number of people. And a lot of the researchers that were brought in came from Operation Paperclip, which brought Nazi scientists and researchers over after World War II. So we were basically taking Nazi brainwashing technology and, and knowledge and making it our own and then testing it on, on subjects. And this went on for a couple of decades before it was allegedly shut down after a couple of Senate committee hearings. The problem is, I think we all know that none of this really ended. It just probably splintered into much smaller, way deeper black um, operations with different names. And and going beyond sort of triggering individuals who are brainwashed to respond to something, you know, whether it's they've used shock therapy or they've used hypnosis, there's all kinds of ways to program a person. But when you get, though, to the directed energy weapons, I mean, this is something people may experience and not know that that's what's causing it, like a fast and pounding heartbeat ringing in the ears, um, sudden extreme fatigue. Um, people feeling like their phone is or their home is being bugged or radiated. I mean, over my lifetime, I've experienced certain things, as have many other people. And sometimes extremely sensitive people can walk into an area and feel that something energetically is just completely off. Maybe not identify what it is, but you just don't get, quote, a good feeling. 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, Larry, you can attest to that on paranormal investigations with the president. But there are a variety of things, though, that cause the very similar physiological effects to that. So obviously modern yeah. medicine has, has tried to explain everything that they possibly can, right? But we know that there's so many gaps in, in our current understanding. So it's kind of like fibromyalgia, right? Yeah. There's, there's really nothing that we know. Uh, it, it, that's kind of like the, the bucket term for when we can't figure out exactly what it is, but we have to put some kind of a name on it. So there are so many influences around us that who's to say or what's to say exactly is causing it. Every one of us just about carries a cell phone around, which is a radiation-producing and receiving device. Every right. one of us is more than likely around microwave ovens in our home. We're around Wi-Fi. We're around, you know, countless, countless amounts of, of electromagnetic radiation. So I don't think that it's a far um, stretch at all to, uh, to try to find some type of um, explanation for why it is that as a culture, we don't seem to be as healthy as we were 30 or 40 plus years ago. Right. Um, but also that it tends to, because of social media, I think it, it's tended to bring out a lot of communication about similar things. So right. people across the world that have, have experienced the headaches and the nausea and the dizziness, they find their, their brethren on the Internet and they communicate about their symptoms and the rest is history. I mean, yeah, you can, and they could be on any day. That too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. you and can go out and part of the look plan. on Facebook, and every day you're going to yeah. see people complaining about something like that. Right, and we don't know because so much of our lives involve things that make us sick. Now <laughs> we don't know what the origin of of a lot of this. You know, I, I just I know from observing and talking to people over the last 10, 20 years, it seems like we are just getting progressively weaker, more tired, more exhausted, more information overloaded, more overwhelmed, and just, you know, you have a lot higher rates of cancer, autoimmune diseases, and what's going on? Is this our environment? Is it because we have so much more to deal with? Is it a combination of internal and external things? And, you know, like Larry said, social media... It, it does the positive thing of bringing people together to talk about their symptoms and maybe, you know, do something positive. But I think it also brings people together that um, it, it expands the amount of paranoia that's out there. And we just don't know what some of the origins are to these things. There's, a, By the way, I just want to tell the audience interested in the issue of MK Ultra and the CIA's Secret Cold War Experiments, a wonderful book written by H.P. Alberelli Jr. It's called A Terrible Mistake, The Murder of Frank Olson and the CIA's oh, yeah. Secret uh -huh. Cold War. And the other is by Hokum B. Noble, um, Chinese War Crimes, The Reign of a De Facto President. And they also include part of it. You know, and, and so it, when we acknowledge that we know these technologies are going on, and I remember, geez, back in the 80s talking with Tom Bearden, who was a scientist with the Navy, and as a result of making a promise to our dear friend, the late Christopher Berg, came on my program one year, and we started talking about all the different 
programs. And, and of course, we see it now with um, different underwater sonic tests, which they say is, you know, for the Navy's own protection. And what it's done to the whales is literally melt their inner ear and their brain. And so then they beach themselves because they're bleeding to death in their head. Um, The Whale War is a beautiful book on this issue. And, And so the technologies are not just impacting humanity, human beings. It's also being used against the animal kingdom. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a very pervasive notion that one has the right and, and somehow or other the given or gained authority through these hierarchies of power and finance to extract such a heavy price um, from all of us in terms of diminishing free will. And for me, that's the bottom line is to what degree does any technology undermine the free will of an individual is where it has to stop from my vantage point. And unfortunately, we're way beyond that point now, um, both sociologically as to what people are willing to accept and militarily as to what's been institutionalized and technologically as to what's already been allowed. So when we come back, we'll shift our focus a little bit to what actually people can do to shield themselves, to make their lives a little healthier, how to identify when things are um, not normal and you get a sense that they're not normal. I always say to people, trust your first intuition. You know, don't try to explain everything away that comes to you as being real because there's some reason your bio system is going, wow, something's really out of whack in this store. It's like for me, I can't be around fluorescent lights. They vibrate at a particular frequency that actually interferes with brainwave function. And so I get very tired, weak, and my eyes roll in my head virtually. (laughs) Anyway, we'll be right back. This is Dr. Tom Ballone from IntegrityResearchInstitute.org, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Dr. Bob's uh, little clip there on ExxonMobil. If you've not seen the news in the New York Times that uh, Exxon is being investigated for possible climate change lies by the New York Attorney General, and it could be actually many states suing them for having participated in trying to obfuscate the way in which oil production is impacting the climate and human health and the environment, et cetera. It's a rather interesting development legally. So we're joined, if you're just joining us, for the entire evening by Marie D. Jones and Larry Flaxman, their book Mind Wars, A History of Mind Control. Learn more at either of their websites, Marie, M-A-R-I-E-D, Jones, J-O-N-E-S dot com, and www.LarryFlaxman, F-L-A-X-M-A-N dot com. And of course, websites are linked directly to our page at 21st, 21ST, Century radio.com. So we've only really touched on, truthfully, how mind control is being done and how electronics and other kinds of technologies now are being used to change human feeling and human interest and human thought and human um, sensibility. There are ways, though, it can be used very positively, something we're going to talk about next hour in more detail. But let's talk about some of the positive things going on. Larry? Positive and from what aspect? What do you well, positive in the sense there's hemisync, there's different kinds of efforts to actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's all good stuff. Definitely not surveillance. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of things that are out there that we utilize. I guess similar technology for for good purposes. For instance, hemisync, the Monroe Institute stuff, um, the BioTuner, some of some of the um, the other technologies that are out there. Uh, there's there's a variety of things that you can look up on YouTube on 
binaural beats and isochronic tones, things that are utilized to help put your brain into a more receptive state for whatever, whether it is you're attempting to uh, quit smoking, you're attempting to um, go into theta state and study, be able to study and retain memory uh, easier. We have technologies to do that. So the technologies are very similar to or, or possibly even offshoots of I guess the more dark and, and intrinsic stuff that we're talking about today. Uh, but for, for every bad purpose um, technology, for instance, EMF, and as we talked about earlier, the skull uh, voice technology, there, there are legitimate reasons to use that technology to better ourselves and, and to heal. Uh, another good example is uh, EMF. So we talked a little bit about EMF. We didn't really get deep into what EMF physiologically, how that uh, can affect our body. But Well, go ahead and talk ahead. about it for a minute because next hour we're going to move into resonance and sort okay. of elevate right. the conversation to where it, where it can possibly take humanity in a very positive sense once we understand the life field is the field in which everything is connected. Well, to a certain extent, yes. EMF, I think, is... There are certainly positive and negative effects physiologically that can be felt. Um, there are some folks uh, that believe very strongly, uh, as you with the fluorescent bulbs, um, that they are able to feel electronic energy or they're able to feel electromagnetic energy. I've talked to a number of folks that, that um, can't wear watches, for instance, because they say every time they wear a watch that the watch just dies. Uh, that there's something about the uh, electronics in the watch or there's, there's something in their body that causes the, the watch to, to stop working. Um, but there are, there are a lot of negative connotations physiologically from high EMF fields. There has been a, a lot of actual case study that's been done regarding folks that have uh, dizziness, nausea, headaches, uh, a lot of the, the same type of symptomology that we experience with mind control technologies. On the paranormal side, one of the things that ghost hunters strongly believe uh, is that the presence of high EMF fields can somehow be indicative of uh, some type of a spirit or, or an entity. But what, and this we can, this, we'll probably talk more about this in the second half, but um, regardless, high EMF fields do cause people to have very similar feelings as those that have had a paranormal experience. People that have uh, exposure to high EMFs often feel uh, a sense of discomfort. They feel like someone is watching them. Uh, for instance, there was a, some research that was done uh, several years ago by Dr. Michael Persinger. Dr. Persinger created the, what he called the God Helmet. The God Helmet was um, a device that, and I actually own one. I, I conversed with Dr. Persinger for quite some time, but... The God Helmet is a device that you wear, and it basically bombards very specific portions of your brain with targeted electromagnetic frequencies. And what he's able to do by doing that is create what he called the sensed presence. In other words, when you wore this helmet and he turned the juice on, you felt like there was someone in the room watching you. Uh, and in many cases, people that, that had undergone the experiment also had a, a great religious epiphany, almost as if... It was something paranormal. And, of course, when you hear paranormal instantly, the first thing that most people uh, automatically associate that with is ghosts. But, obviously, it's really anything that's outside of the realm of current scientific understanding. 
But Dr. Persinger's work and a number of other folks have, have determined that high EM fields uh, can cause us to experience things. We can feel things and see things that, that don't actually exist uh, by the application of targeted EM fields. So some of the negative things we kind of covered, but some of the positives, uh, we talked a little bit about hemi-sync. There's another technology called hollow-sync, um, binaural beats, isochronic tones. All of those things utilize uh, physiological means within your body to uh, what's called entrain your brain. And by entraining your brain, it's basically putting your brain into a very receptive state to do something. Um, so there are, there, is a, there are a variety of different tones and different signals that can be uh, used to do that. And I'm sure, again, we'll talk more on the second half with this. But those tones are all electromagnetic in nature. Yes, they're sound, but sound falls within the electromagnetic spectrum. So it could also be argued, again, going back to the conspiracy aspect, um, that the, there, there are certain tones and certain frequencies that you might think are being used help for helpful or useful purposes, for instance, music, um, but that actually may not be. In other words, I, I think it's certainly possible with music, for instance, to have some kind of a carrier or subtone that's included within that music, very much like subliminal, subliminals, as we talked them earlier, um, but that these, these carrier tones will actually create that sense very much like the binaural beats and the isochronic tones, they will, they will entrain your brain to do something. Mm-hmm. Well, so, it seems that way to me when you go, like I can't go to large crowds like a sports game. I can't go. I get so physically ill um, from the level of sound, from the numbers of people, from whatever else might actually be going on. And, and like I said, there, you know, I'm not unusual. There are millions of people who who feel now um, so assaulted when you go into any public space, whether you go into a, a mall. I haven't been in a mall in eight years, I don't think, because yeah. the, the sound is so loud, the light is so offensive, the noise so drowning that literally if you're at all in tune with your inner voice, it drowns out your, um, what's the right word, your, your autonomic kind of feedback system is the best way I can describe it. It's almost as though my natural biosystem gets completely interrupted. That's the best way I can put it, which is why I've used acupuncture now for 32 years every month because it's one of the only treatments that literally addresses the electromagnetic body and restores balance to it. So I encourage everybody in the listening audience, if you think you're a highly sensitive person, find a good traditional acupuncturist, of which we have many in the state of Maryland because their training center is here. But but continuing, because we just have a few more minutes, and I want to finish this topic of mind wars, there are ways we can each become more aware um, of what's around us, what we're sensing. And I mentioned earlier when I always tell people, Follow your intuition. If you have a gut sense that someplace you're standing is making you feel ill, there's a reason for it. It's not just your imagination. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people have to get educated. And writing this book was very educational for me. And I, you know, I'm sure it was for Larry talking to Larry about what my cell phone is doing and how it's watching my every move. I mean, I think when you get educated, then you can start to back away from some of the devices. You can stop watching the news. 
um, you know, stepping away. Would, this has been, been the hard one for me, the stepping away from social media because I'm a very social person. But, yeah, there's definitely ways that we can get control back of our thoughts and behaviors. And and also you, you had mentioned there's certain actually, I remember years ago people saying, well, if you wear silk, silk will protect you from some of these electromagnetic frequencies. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. They say that about rubber and there are some shielding. There are actually companies online that are selling shielding clothing for people who think that they're being yeah. bombarded with microwave. But I don't know if those are effective. I, I really couldn't speak to that. I've not tried any of them. There are some people that swear by them. I interviewed I mean, the a, a hat. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say I interviewed um, a European naturopath who said that clothing made from moss, from lichen, and not lichen, it was from some sort of moss, um, huh. actually helped deter the frequencies that the human body absorbed. And they make a clothing line now out of that material and oh, wow. um yeah somebody yeah. should just google moss as body protection uh, and see what comes up i can't remember the particular thing yeah <laughs> and i mean the whole concept of the tinfoil hat actually came from the belief that wearing tinfoil around your brain could protect it from anything that was being beamed toward it so even that has sort of an interesting origin to it yes but can I Does step in with my my skepticism now? <laughs> totally, no, it doesn't yeah. work. All no. of those things are, are pseudoscience. The right. silk clothes right. and, and all of the clothing, absolutely not. The only known scientific way to deflect or prevent electromagnetic radiation intrusion is by the use of a Faraday cage. Exactly. Now, yeah. Unless you are able to ground your body to the ground 100% of the time and you create this, this mesh network around you, all of those things are simply designed to suck money out of your pocketbook. We have to go for this hour, but you're absolutely right. I used to joke I was going to have a Faraday cage on wheels that I took with me everywhere. We'll be back. Our guests, Marie D. Jones and Larry Flaxman. Continuing this hour with our guests, Marie D. Jones and Larry Flaxman, we're going to talk about an earlier book they've authored, The Resonance Key, Exploring the Links Between Vibration Consciousness and the Zero Point Grid, also a new page release, 2009. And as they say in their book, what if the true nature of reality were like an onion made up of layer upon layer that when peeled back would reveal a creative, self-regenerating web-like core, a center that could contain the whole of all that is, was, and will be. Scientists and paranormal researchers alike are looking to a resonance as the theory that could bridge the gap between science and the supernatural and explain every facet of reality in between. So we're going to look at that this hour, these ideas, theories, and research that link vibration, mind, and matter. And I like to say, well, this is the lighter side, but also the really enriching and um, wonderful I think precipice upon which humanity stands, which is appreciating the power of our consciousness. So, ladies and gentlemen, here we are, second hour. So why don't we talk about when you began this book, what you were trying to answer, what you were looking for? Hmm. We have to think back here to 2008 when we wrote it. Um, well, you well, write, I'll start you, and then I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll let Larry pitch in, but... We were having, I think we were having a lot of conversations at that time about different ways of trying to explain paranormal phenomena, and resonance was one of the key 
ideas that we were looking at, and it's kind of like the more we talked about it and thought about it, the more it was showing up in things that we were researching, and it just got to the point where we thought, wow, we really want to write a book about what we're discovering. And Larry, you spend an awful lot of time in the paranormal field, and the work that you do in your own state is certainly very well known. Tell us a little bit about that involvement you have and and why, whether it's UFOs or ghosts or clairvoyance or remote viewing or teleportation. We're talking about things that are all really connected through vibration or through light, if you want to reduce it even further. Absolutely. My involvement in it, you're you're asking why I'm involved? No, just the things that you've noticed. I mean, you've spent a lot of your life, and this is what you speak to a great deal. For instance, why don't we start where you all do in your book? I mean, there were ancient civilizations that understood resonance and the question about how the pyramids were built or the Carl Castle down right. in Florida, which my husband and I went and visited. Um, yeah. These are all um, reflections of what may have been a really sophisticated understanding of vibration. Well, absolutely. And one of the reasons why Marie and I really wanted to write the book was that we believe very strongly that resonance and vibration is is somewhat of the fabric of reality. In fact, the resonance key served as kind of the, the basis for our book, The Grid. Um, a lot of what we wrote about in The Grid is is building off of what we covered in the, the resonance key. But what we wanted to do with the resonance key was, was present a different idea. We really wanted to present the idea that, that reality and all of this we consider to be real and unreal, i.e. paranormal, um, had actually a more prosaic explanation. Um, and that prosaic explanation was that these were all legitimate things to a certain extent, but they resonated or vibrated at different frequencies. So my interest, or I guess my involvement uh, in that, um, is, is somewhat two-pronged. Um, I believe myself very strongly uh, that there is a personal uh, connection to the phenomena uh, as far as when we're talking paranormal stuff. I, th- I believe very strongly that we are a, a part and parcel of that experience. But secondary to that, I also very strongly believe that resonance, as we wrote about in the book, is also a very important piece of that. So there's a variety of things that we, we wrote about in the book and a variety of things that I've researched personally uh, that revolve around the idea of things vibrating or things resonating that might be precursors to uh, the manifestation of something paranormal. Um, a couple years back, I was on a, a TV show called Ghost Lab, and on that show, um, they, I guess, had tapped me for my, quote, expert knowledge. And I really hate being called an expert in anything, um, but my expert knowledge in EVP, or electronic voice phenomena, and I had come up with the idea that immediately prescient to a legitimate electronic voice phenomena capture, that there would be a very significant EMF spike that would occur within a very specific portion of the audio spectrum. It was within the, uh, the subsonic, well, below subsonic. It was within the infrasonic range, which is below human hearing, but it was something where I believe almost like opening, the, opening a microphone or keying up a microphone. Immediately as you key up a microphone, there's a small burst of energy that's released at the same time, or immediately, I should say, immediately prior to the engagement. So that was my theory. I went on the show and kind of talked about it, and they went to a notoriously uh, haunted prison. I won't, I won't uh, say the location, um, and utilized my theory, and they captured a, a phenomenal 
Class A EVP using that. But I, I very strongly believe that resonance and sound plays a part in that. I also think that there are experiences that we have as humans uh, that are being affected physiologically that are affecting us using infrasonic. There is a variety of people throughout history that have had paranormal experiences that I think very simply could be explained by the utilization of infrasonic sound. We talked in the book, um, well, we've, we've not only in the book, in, in a lot of our speaking things, we talk about uh, what infrasonic sound does to the human body, what some of the physiological effects are, and they all match up very closely with what people generally experience during a paranormal, uh, a paranormal event. So my take on it, or my piece of the resonance key, I guess, is um, as we're writing the book, I would utilize a lot of our, our research and I would utilize some of our theories in the application of, of real-world research. So I would get to go out, Marie and I would, would come up with an idea or a hypothesis, and I would get to go out and kind of test that within the paranormal um, and see if it, if it worked or it didn't work. And a lot of what we discovered really did come down to resonance and that it seemed to work. It seemed to offer explanations for things that traditionally were unexplainable. And when you look at the the basic Western mystery tradition, it'll tell you that all things are related in octaves of similars. So that if a person on the ground um, has a, a past experience with a particular energy, um, and then they go into a place and they have a particular frequency, they draw to them, whether it's a ghost of a similar deceased you know, disposition, or it's an angelic presence, that these are matchings, that it's sort of one vibration calls another. And I, I think it was fascinating when you talked a little bit about... Um, and I think it's an always an interesting topic, how sound and electromagnetic radiation are both measured in hertz. And we always think of them as being so very different from one another. Right. Well, they're not. Um, really, everything within the electromagnetic spectrum are basically ends of the yardstick. Um, so all of the different energy forms fall within that. And what's interesting to me is, from, from the human aspect is, that there are all of these things that are around us at all times, every from, from nil or zero all the way up to microwave and beyond. These, these frequencies are around us all the time, yet we have very limited sensory abilities as human beings, and we're not able to discern them. So as we sit in our, well, me, as I sit in my home office speaking, I've got Wi-Fi that's blasting all around me. There's AM, FM, very high-frequency VHF, UHF. Um, microwave, there's lots and lots of things that are in the air right now mm -hmm. that we can't perceive. We can't hear it. We can't feel it. We can't, we can't sense it simply because we don't have the sensory ability. So it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Or that it's um, not affecting to, us. Or that it, absolutely, right. that it's not affecting us. We just don't know how to do it. And, and, to, it's, to and it's interesting it. because when you think about animals, I'm writing a book on animals and I'm doing a lot of dreaming with them. And it's um, very interesting because, as you even point out, animals will hear an infrasound as an example. And I have in my own book examples of animals getting out of tsunami areas or earthquakes before they happen or the Zagreb Zoo before it was bombed. The animals went crazy hours before. Well, just if you own a cat, you can sometimes see them looking around at things that, you know, there's nothing there. But we do know that different animals can 
perceive different parts of the light spectrum that we can't. They can hear different pound, uh, parts of the sound spectrum, whether it's infrasound or ultrasound. So there's this whole other reality out there that we as humans are very limited to um, experiencing, but animals can do every day. And one of the reasons why we wrote the book was because we kept saying, how the heck are we ever going to understand the paranormal realities if we don't yet quite understand the infrastructure of our own normal waking reality? And we can't see reality, but does it have a structure? What is the most fundamental layer of that structure? And we know from quantum and theoretical physics that nothing is solid. Everything vibrates. So that was a good starting point for us to write the book. Well, and I think I'm glad you included. I used to do shows. One of my favorite topics was Nikolai Tesla's work. And um, I remember, you know, when he would say that earthquakes can be manufactured. Uh, You don't always have to detonate a nuclear bomb in the ground to create an earthquake, though that does it too. And I used to predict where earthquakes would be because of the work of um, Gary Whiteford of New Brunswick, Canada, that he tracked these things and showed it's a nuclear bomb dropped in the ground. There was an earthquake such and such relative to where it was. Nikolai Tesla said that earthquakes can be controlled through standing waves. And then I loved your inclusion of um, Vic Tandy, the founder of Radio Shack, describing that. Talk to us about that. Oh, okay. Uh, same same name, but not the founder. Oh, all right. So, so Vic Tandy's experience was very unique, um, and it was one I think that, that, to a certain extent, drove a lot of my belief uh, as far as infrasound and the connection to the paranormal. So, Vic Tandy was a research professor at Coventry University, and I think it was in Edinburgh, if I remember correctly. It's been a while since I since I remember, but I think it was Edinburgh. Anyways. Professor Tandy was a, um, he was an avid fencer, and most of us on this side of the pond probably don't know what that is, but it's, it, it is the sport of sword fighting, and apparently that's a very popular thing overseas. Um, but Professor Tandy was working in his lab one evening late at night, and after a particularly grueling game of, of uh, fencing, his fencing foil had bent, so he had brought the fencing foil to his foil, which is about six feet long. It's a, it's a long, pointy um, sword, for lack of a better word. Um, so he had brought that down into his lab, and he was an engineer, um, so he had access to lots of cool things. But um, he brought it down to his lab and fixed the foil in a, in a uh, vise, and he was working on trying to straighten the foil. Well, the university where Professor Tandy worked was a, a very old, old facility. Um, I think it dated to like the 1680s or thereabouts. Um, and it was obviously there was notoriously um, haunted. There was there was studies throughout time, or not studies, there were stories throughout time of people having experiences on campus. And I'm sure being in an old building late at night probably didn't uh, didn't hurt that perception at all. But... So he's, as he's down there, he is attempting to strength, or to straighten his foil. He starts noticing in the corner of his eye a black shadow. And the black shadow starts at one corner of the room, and he slowly sees it move to the other corner of the room. Well, Professor Tandy was somewhat of a skeptic, uh, was not a, a big believer in the, the ghost stories that had been told. Um, but 
he got up to see what it was. He, he was very curious why he was seeing some type of a shadow movement uh, from one corner of the lab to the other. So he, he got up to investigate. There was nothing there. Sat back down at, at his bench, worked on the fencing foil again, and noticed the same thing, a black mass uh, that started in, on one side uh, of, of the room and moved to the other very slowly. This happened three or four times until Professor Tandy decided to call it an evening, uh, thinking that either there was perhaps something to the stories of the, the hauntings that he had heard, or perhaps there was an uninvited uh, visitor that had, had gotten into the lab, perhaps a, a, a burglar. So he left, came back the next morning. There was nothing that was reported missing from the lab. He couldn't find any uh, disturbance of, of things. So he really was curious what, what it was that he saw. Um, and after some research and involving some other engineers, what they discovered was, was very interesting. Um, there had been recently some air conditioning and, and duct work uh, that had been completed. And what they had discovered was that that fencing foil, as it was locked in static position in that um, vice, that every time the air conditioner would turn on, there was a, a small breeze that blew down. And what would happen was the, the fencing foil, which again is about six feet long, would begin to vibrate very imperceptibly. It would move from left to right very, very slowly. What they found was that the movement of that fencing foil created a vibration. And furthermore, because of the acoustics of the room and, and the, uh, the engineering or the, uh, the layout, of the uh, area itself, that vibration turned into a standing wave. And that standing wave was, was um, a very, very low infrasonic frequency. It was approximately 18 hertz, between 18 to, to 19 hertz. And upon further research, what they found was that that particular frequency uh, is the resonant frequency of the viscous fluid in the human eyeball. So what was actually happening when Professor Tandy was seeing this black mass move from one corner of the room to the other, it was nothing paranormal. What actually was happening was his eyeball was vibrating imperceptibly, and it was vibrating the goo in his eye. So the black mass that he saw, while he believed perhaps could have been a, a shadow figure or something paranormal, was nothing more than physiological, the body's physiological response to an infrasonic sound. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because Dr. Stanley Krippner, a dear friend of ours who's just been so instrumental in helping so many people around the world move into these fields as, you know, Ph.D. candidates, always says, look, for all this paranormal stuff, you're going to find a scientific explanation for it if we look close enough. And, of course, frequency and resonance and light is what connects it all. We'll be right back. If you're just joining us, Marie D. Jones and Larry Flaxman are with us. Marie's website, www.mariedjones.com and www.larryflaxman.com. Hello, this is Dean Radin. I'm author of the book called Supernormal. I'm also chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences in Petaluma, California. You can learn more about my work at deanradin.com, that's D-E-A-N-R-A-D-I-N.com, and more about the Institute of Noetic Sciences at ions.org, I-O-N-S.org. You're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. We're talking about their 
book from 2009, The Residence Key, Exploring the Links Between Vibration, Consciousness, and the Zero-Point Grid. So, Larry and Marie, so from where research stands today and what's developing, I loved this one line you said, we might say that, quote, infrasound is what puts the spook in spooky locations, and and then showing us even there's a certain disorder that somebody will see things and see geometric shapes and have hallucinations as a result of some sort of um, effect, either a neurological illness or imbalance, or that they are sensitive to other frequencies that others human brain isn't. So talk to us about this. I mean, because if paranormal phenomena is the result of light and sound interacting with our own brain waves, why is it that some people can see it and some people don't? That's why we wrote the book, The Grid, where we really wanted to take a look at both the physiological and environmental influences that may explain why some people experience certain things and a person standing next to them experiences nothing. And in, in that book, which we kind of feel is the sequel to The Resonance Key, we really looked at some of the factors, the physiological things, everything from you know brainwave patterns to pH balance to blood type to you know if you were a woman, whether or not you were menstruating, to hormones and chemicals in the brain and how all of those things may have some type of influence on uh, working in conjunction with what's happening environmentally that allow a particular person to perceive another reality, to perceive another uh, level, you know, parallel universe, whatever you want to call it. Because I've been, Larry's been on way more investigations than I have, but I've been on some where the person standing next to me is freaking out and I'm looking around like what you know there's nothing here I don't feel anything I'm not experiencing anything so we really wanted to look at all of the different factors that might be involved and and again I think Larry can probably speak better to that from uh, working with his group and how belief plays into it the power of suggestion telling people stories that they're going to experience in a place that is really not haunted and having them actually experiencing them I mean that's wild. And for those that don't know, Larry Flaxman is the founder and president of ARPAST, the Arkansas Paranormal and Anomalous Studies team. So what, what do you say, Larry, because you've been out there with a lot of different individuals in a lot of different situations, whether, you know, we're talking about ghost phenomena or UFO phenomena or contact with angels or aliens. I mean, these are real phenomena and real content is exchanged. And sometimes information that a person has no way of gaining on their own is delivered directly through telepathy into their mind. Well, I think there's there's many different angles to look at this. I think, you know, obviously there are the legitimate stories, people that, that are completely believable and that have had experiential events that, that seem to be uh, backed up with, with fact. Um, there are some folks, I think, certainly that would fall into the, um, how can I be very politically correct about this, um, the, the fraud category, uh, I think, you know, that, that certainly that, that is a concern. There are individuals that, for whatever motivation, I think are, are uh, less than honest about things. Um, and then I think there are the, the third aspect are the folks that believe that they've experienced something, um, but that might actually not have. Um, perhaps, again, going back to the first hour, maybe they had some type of manipulation, um, 
perhaps it was a EMF or, or auditory type um, experience uh, that that provided them with with whatever it was that they needed to believe that they had an experience. I think you tend to see that a lot more in like the UFO and the abductee arenas, much more so than within the paranormal. But I, I'm sure it still happens as well. Um, so. The big, what's the big answer there? Well, I, I don't think there is one. I think certainly there are folks that have had legitimate experiences, as you mentioned. That certainly there are folks that have had the ability to bring back or retrieve information, uh, if you will, that they would have no other means of, of knowing. If you look at individuals like Edgar Casey, he's a perfect example of that. When he would go into his trance states and retrieve that information from the Akashic field and bring it back, which, by the way, he was, you know, he didn't have these abilities until he almost drowned. And Absolutely. it's really interesting yeah. how the near-death experience has triggered so many people's super sensible yeah. awareness, my own included. I almost drowned at the age of three, and from that time on, boy, I could see all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think that all, all of it, there, there's really no one explanation for everything. I think everything plays a, a vital key uh, in that perception. And... In our book, The Grid, we, we talk about a variety of factors, physiological, psychological. Um, you had mentioned blood type, just out of curiosity. What did you type, find about yeah. the blood types and their accessibility to these sort of less than visible, less than audible um, influences? Marie, you want to get that one? Well, here's the problem, and Larry and I have talked about this. There's not enough money being put into research to find the answer to that. So we talk in the grid about a lot of the things that need to be looked at, including hormone levels at the time, you know, what kind of chemicals are racing through the human body at the key times that most people experience a paranormal event. Between the hours of 11 p.m. and 3 a.m., there's all kinds of stuff that happen in the human body that may lend credence to the idea that people have more paranormal experiences at night. Uh, not just because, you know, it's dark. I mean, right. that's not the reason. There's there's uh, fluctuations of cortisol, there's melatonin, serotonin levels are rising and falling. So the problem is, is that we present all this, including could it have anything to do with blood types? You know, there's a, an allegation, and I don't want to say that it's real or not, that uh, certain UFO contactees have a particular, I think it's a... a, a Oh, I forgot the blood type. It's yeah, I'd totally... like to hear that because, you, you know, know year, years <laughs> yeah, ago and... I asked all the UFO researchers, was there any data on the blood type? Because I, if I were an alien, I'd be looking at certain blood types right. for sure because everybody you started out money, as an O. Though. You need money to do that. I mean, gosh, Larry's done some basic uh, brainwave research with some uh, equipment that he got that was very expensive. And, I mean, there's such limitations on researchers like us because we can't operate through a university right and even the researchers that can the universities are often very reluctant to fund you know you go in and say i want to study the blood types of people that tend to see ghosts more than others right and they're just going to say you know there's the door right so but we it, need but, some benefactors <laughs> well rupert sheldrake and i'm glad that you included him because he's done so much work and um i loved his book on Animals that know when their owners are returning home, a very long, right. extravagant title. But he showed that there is this telepathy. There is some way in which species or life um, forms, whether it's trees or dogs or minerals or clouds, actually have content 
that is perceivable and deliverable if we focus our attention. And he said that the human body is nested hierarchies of vibrational frequencies. It's kind of like a piano. Right. You know, you hit a certain key. So if if our ears hear between 20 and 20,000 cycles per second, and you wrote that sound wave energy is between 15 and 33 hertz, what does that have to do with the grids? I mean, there's a lot of theories about grid patterns. The the Hagen one I remember from the 1980s, um, the, what was it, Becker-Hagen, I think you included that. But talk to us a little bit about the grid and how it kind of puts everybody and everything thing in some form of um, patterned relationship. You want me to start, Larry? Or <laughs> um, Yeah, yeah, definitely. For us, because we would talk about this so much, we wanted to come up with a visual that we felt could explain what can't be seen, and that is the infrastructure of reality itself and the idea that there, there isn't just one level of reality. It's almost like if you were to take the face off of a skyscraper so that you could see all the different floors and all the different ways that you can access those floors, staircases, um, elevators, uh, fire escapes, you know, even ballooning up and down or jumping down from the roof to the ground. There's just so many different ways that you can access each floor is like a different level of reality. And if we can find those connectors, those elevators, those escalators, those fire escapes, then we get to experience a different reality. And our belief is that we are doing that um, often, you know, involuntarily. I think sometimes these things happen out of nowhere. We don't really have a lot of control over them. But that perhaps when we are operating at a different frequency, when we can attempt to change our frequency through some of the things we talked about in the last hour, the binaural beats and all that kind of mind control, mind manipulation uh, techniques that can be used for good, that maybe we can change our frequency and therefore change our perception and get to experience one of those other levels of reality. And the brain, of course, has its own set of frequencies. And so depending on what it is that's being um, triggered or turned on or off is whether you feel agitated or whether you're having bliss. Right, right. And, and of course... Aligning... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, and I was just going to say, and to a certain extent, that, that's very individualistic. Uh, each person has kind of their own threshold or their own tolerance uh, for those things. So, you know... Uh, a specific level of EM, for instance, may not affect one person, but the person right next to him, it may have a great influence upon. Mm-hmm. Right. And and it's so, you know, when I think back to the spiritist movement in the 30s and their efforts to use um, very unsophisticated technology in which to facilitate certain things. And then you look at Raymond Moody's very simple replication of the Greek psychomantium, which people gaze into basically a standing water and are able to see the reflection of deceased loved ones and carry on conversation. I mean, so it's not as though, you know, only the moderners is trying to um, get access to these other levels of consciousness. And of course, what you're speaking to is pretty much what quantum physicists and others are talking about in terms of whether we aren't being keyed up, whether or not things aren't being accelerated and the frequency itself isn't being, um, I guess one could say, elevated or made higher. Right, right. And also just thinking of ourselves, I mean, if you want to think of ourselves as radios, 
And we can tune into different stations depending on what we, if we want to hear the news or a certain type of music, but we're not tuned into all the stations at once. There has to be some kind of conscious action or effort to, to retune uh, to a different station and therefore get different information. And I think that's how our brains and our, our minds and our bodies operate. But most of us have not figured out the proper ways to change the, the station. Right. No, I think that's very true. We are receivers and we are senders, so we do both. We're going to take our last break of the hour, and we'll be right back. This is James DeMeo of the Orgone Biophysical Research Laboratory. You can find my books at Amazon and other kinds of websites. The last name is D-E-M-E-O, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, and thank you. So I want to come back to HARP because I spent a lot of time with Nick Baggage decades, over decades, talking about the HARP project. And, and you followed up with um, Jerry Smith's work, HARP, The Ultimate Weapon of Conspiracy. But HARP is a fascinating example of how the most um, invasive technology can be put right out in the public and nobody asks what's happening. Well, and also the, that the public has been told that HARP you know, ended, that it was sort of shut down and went inoperative when, in fact, a lot of people say it's quite the contrary. Um, and and the, the connection between HARP and possibly some kind of manipulation of the weather. So apparently this is a uh, DARPA project that is beaming out all kinds of stuff into the ionosphere and the belief is that it's coming back to affect us physiologically as well as environmentally. Right, um, that it can cause earthquakes it, and, yeah. Right, right, oh. changes in weather, chem, you know, everything from chemtrails to, to earthquakes to the shifting northern lights, what have you. And the, nobody seems to quite know whether it is still operational or not. And that's real confusing, I think. A lot of times when you mention HARP, people will automatically label you a conspiracy theorist, but this is an official DARPA program. Yeah, And, and again, it's unlikely that they would just shut it down. Um, obviously, they probably put out a lot of misinformation and disinformation, which goes back to mind wars. Right, uh, and and I th- and I think it's important for. because Tesla certainly understood how, with a standing wave, to create earthquakes, and this is an advance in the Tesla technology. So, we're talking about the capacity to disrupt our Earth's own geophysical systems, as you all rightly point exactly. out. and it's using our atmosphere, which, in other words, what it's doing is not something that we could identify and say, "Oh, look, there's a harp." It's not a missile. I mean, it's literally beaming specific frequencies into the atmosphere, uh, ionospheric modification. It's pulsing, you know, microwave, all kinds of stuff into the atmosphere, which is invisible to the average human. But we tend to, we, we feel the effects, and we sense the effects, and we talk about the effects, even though we're not quite sure what the cause is. 
that's a very mysterious project. Well, certainly but... it, it could be <clears throat> exacerbating what are already Earth changes. And so when you have, yeah. um, I remember when former Secretary of State Cohen said, we have to stop these weather wars. You know, there's the point now of manipulating the weather for something as ridiculous as a sporting event or as nefarious as a war. So it's right. not as though, you know, those of us who talk about these things and look at them or authors who write books on it are delusional. Mm-hmm. It's very factual. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And I think to this day, I keep, I keep seeing people, any, anytime anything unusual happens, it's harp, it's harp. And to an extent, maybe some of the things that happen are part of that manipulation, but I, I find it doubtful that it's doing every, you know, responsible for every event and every earthquake that happens. No, but you know... that's how we stay confused, is that there's so much going on that we become confused as to separate what is harp and what is this and what is that and what is just entirely natural phenomena. But as we also know, as Nick and I talked about for so many years, is when you disrupt the ionosphere... And and certainly nobody on this earth can tell you what the consequences will be. So this is the grossest kind of mass experimentation, and that's why sure, I did impart right. so many shows oh, yeah. on it. Yeah, so, we, we may not know for twenty, thirty years what the after or the fallout will be of Harp. And you know, I think obviously in some uh, aspects we're finding out now, and <laughs> it could explain why people feel. So sick, and why there are so many incidences of cancer and autoimmune diseases, and why we have earthquakes happening in places they haven't uh, happened before that have minor, very small fault lines. And and again, there are no laws preventing it, as we talked about with subliminal programming. Right. You know, with electromagnetic directed energy weaponry, as you all point out. Even though there was a Space Preservation Act, there are a lot of people who are trying to keep space. You know. um, weapons free but of course it didn't pass and this is a whole new venue of um, weaponry that again it's it's just such a malicious I think defiance would be the right word of of human trust and of what we're really supposed to be doing with our talent and technology. So let's turn this on its head a little bit and talk a bit about, again, the positive uses of these kinds of understandings, because certainly we know that sound and color can be used for healing. Right. Oh, yeah. MRIs, you know, resonance is used in a variety. I mean, ultrasound. (laughs) Excuse me. There's a lot of positive benefits to learning about different vibrational frequencies and what they do to us physiologically. And so if we look at the new neurotechnology, which you all have included, and people always joke about, you know, oh, at one point we'll just put a port in the back of our brain and download all kinds of information and won't really have to learn anymore. We'll just absorb it when we need it. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's, it's, um, you know, there are a lot of people who think it's very exciting that we're going to be human machines. I, for one, am very... um, alarmed at the speed at which we're moving this direction again before we cultivate the ethics of the heart. Yeah, I agree. It is scary to think about where technology could take our humanity. So the title of this book includes Zero Point Grid. Describe that for us and what you mean by it. Go ahead, Larry. (laughs) Well, the Zero Point Grid is, is really kind of the all-encompassing term, I guess, if you will. A lot of people have different 
names for it, the ether, the, the source, the force, the field, whatever you want to call it. It basically all refers to kind of that, that initiating point of everything, that, that zero, um, almost like that zero day uh, in computer term, um, the, the genesis of everything. Um, so that's really what that refers to. And before that, though, in your other book, you talked about some of the grid systems I mentioned, um, because I have my own theory about some of these things and why we've sort of lost our key to interrelationship between all of the sacred sites on the planet, which were once all aligned, whether they were in England or in Egypt or in France, or in the United States, because until we changed our meridian from the Giza Plateau to Greenwich, England, which happened as a result of the Royal Navy, of the great empire at the time, um, everything was aligned to the galactic center, because the belt stars of Orion point to the galactic center. And we moved off of it so that now our meridian marker has really nothing to do with the galaxy. It's 30 minutes, three minutes. No, it's 30. Yeah, it's it's a whole house off in astrology. It's like 30 minutes and three degrees, something like that. And and so it has disrupted um, the natural resonance that was once understood by all the sacred societies. And you talk a little right. bit about that. So So share with us why we know that ancient civilizations and more modern ones have understood this theme of resonance and they pick certain sites on ley lines or wherever it was for a very particular frequency reason. Yeah, I think they were just much more tuned into their environment than we are. We have so many more distractions than they did and our, our you know, even in primitive times, people lived a lot closer to nature. They were more aware of the cycles. They were more in tune with nature's changes and the different energies that they were experiencing, they may not have necessarily had a very advanced way of describing it. Uh, we, you know, have a much more uh, scientific vocabulary now for some of these things. But, you know, uh, F. David Peet's work with the Blackfoot Indians and their cosmology and Laird Scranton looking at the West African Dogon, you have these native or indigenous tribes that are very much aware of the quantum physics that's going on around them, but they describe it with different terminology. And so even in ancient times, we knew where to build things. We built things for a purpose and a reason, and we built them on sacred ground, whereas today we just build things in places where we can get the most profit. And when you look at, I mean, you've written so many different kinds of books, but when we look at where things are going, what are some of your concerns and what are some of your sort of, aha, this is fantastic? I'm I'm afraid for my son. I know, Larry, you have a daughter. Um, you know, right, technology, right. they're so in tune with it, but by the time they're adults, is it going to is it going to have totally overtaken their humanity and the the world around them is just going to be artificial intelligence and robotics and there's really not going to be a place for human beings. That's I think one of my concerns about AI and increasing technology, but at the same time, wow, oh. maybe we can cure diseases. Yeah. Right. I don't know. I think the thing that worries me the most is, is probably just the, and I guess it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword, but that the technological progression. I mean, I, I think yeah. if, if, you, if you go out to dinner and you look around you, you don't see people talking anymore. And it, it seems like our cell phones have become completely 
a replacement for human communication. So what, what really concerns me is that the next generations will have almost devolved in a certain sense. In other words, right. perhaps potentially, you know, the human being, us as human beings as a species will um, evolve or devolve uh, where we have, you know, smaller brain capacity. Mm-hmm. Well, that, and that um, was sort of what I brought up with Dean Radin and others that I've not really debated, but we don't agree. Because I feel that the human aptitudes of what Ingo Swan used to call biomind superpowers, our ability for remote viewing, our ability for healing at a distance, our ability, you know, to, to really change things with our conscious attention and intention um, will be weakened because we will be expecting machines to do it for us. And a very simple example is kids who have grown up who haven't learned math and they can't add or subtract or divide or multiply because they grew up with computers that could do it for them. And the same thing with writing. So many kids today really literally physically cannot write because all they've done is grow up with a keyboard. And so I hear you. And these are things that concern me is what will happen to our real genius, which are our stealth. This is stealth weaponry to me, the ability to be far-seeing and to see through things and to know things before they happen. And these are our divine inheritances. And my concern is that these are absolutely going to be obfuscated so that we are more... Um, able to be controlled and manipulated, and fewer and fewer people will have these capacities. That's why I love all the indigenous tribal peoples of the world who have kept all these inner technologies alive and fluid. Right, right. And maybe there'll be a tipping point where people will just have had enough where they'll really feel like, you know, I'm not happy. Or we'll have a big solar flare or some sort of galactic core explosion, and we'll have a (laughs) major computer meltdown worldwide, and we'll be left standing there in our naked human bodies again. That's what I think is going to happen, actually. We won't know what to do with ourselves. Well, we're going to learn real fast. I mean, even it's so funny. Even when you think about when I tell young children that, yeah, we used to have a dial phone and we couldn't text anybody. (laughs) And then you think back to centuries before where you had to wait till a letter crossed the seas. The kind of patience and faith that humans used to have to have, we no longer are developing because everything is so instantaneous. So we don't even know what it is. Every one of us, again, with our cell phones, we all carry the world's largest encyclopedias with us. Yeah. You know, at an instant, Google is at your your beck and command, and you don't have to think anymore. So, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Between that and and this is a whole other topic, but Common Core, wow. Um, Between those two (laughs) things, I'm really concerned for humanity. I tried helping my daughter the other day with her math homework. Yeah, My daughter's nine, and, you know, and and here I am, a college graduate, and, and I'm trying to figure out, her, her, you know, second grade math, mm-hmm. this common core stuff is just insane, but a totally different topic. But mm-hmm. yes, I, I don't know. I don't know that I necessarily agree, though, that that it's going to get to a tipping point. I think we're becoming more and more accustomed to technology and we're becoming more and more uh, used to giving away our liberties, for instance, and the uses, the positive uses of technology that, you know, it's it's. The progression, I, I don't see us ever going back. I mean, that would be the equivalent of us going back to the to the crank model, Model T, 
uh, in vehicles. I I just don't see us stepping backwards to be able to do that unless there was some sort of a major catastrophic event like you guys mentioned. Which is, I think, enough astrophysicists are now predicting we're due. 26,000-year cycles, and it happens. So, well, I want to thank you both for continuing your odyssey and journey and sharing with the public so many different topics in so many different forms. Follow up after the show on their websites at www.mariedjones.com and www.larryflaxman.com and also our website, www.21st21stcenturyradio.com. And as I like to remind everybody, when you have a feeling, pay attention to it. When you have a sense about something, listen to yourself. And that's really the key to overriding a lot of influences that we don't have control over, which is to listen to our own inner voice. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.